0: I know you have, like, some conservative friends. What do they think about, like, Ron DeSantis versus Trump? Do you even know their opinions on any of that?
1: My conservative, well, want DeSantis.
0: Really? hmm That's because, actually surprising to me. Because Why?
1: Because of the woke. Because of the woke? Business. They think that everything is
0: either woke or not woke. Yeah. So they like him for that. They think he'd do better at that than Trump, I guess.
1: I think they're kind of tired of Trump. Yeah. And with a lot of my con- very conservative religious friends, they want Pence.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I know he's like really hardline on abortion. So mm-hmm. that probably feeds into it a lot. Are they kind of like maybe some of those like almost single issue voters? Mm-hmm. Or they're just very much yeah. like whoever is the most <clears throat> against abortion is probably going to get their vote. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Which I don't even know what DeSantis stand on that. I mean, I know he's. Against it, but I don't know if it's six weeks, 12 weeks. I I think he's
0: more strict than Trump is on abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is because I don't know how much Trump actually believes in the pro-life cause. But I think he knows that, I mean, if you look at what happened in the midterms, Democrats really overperformed primarily because Roe v. Wade got overturned. And that gave them a lot of momentum going into the midterms. And I think Trump looked at that, and I think it's probably smart politically from his perspective because he, he has to cater both to the desires of his base, but he also has to worry about winning the general. So he can't be too strict on the issue of abortion. right? Like someone like Mike Pence, that guy's never going to win a general election. He's just way too hardline, and he's out of step with, I think, what most Americans would want.
1: During the town hall, Trump would not pin himself down yeah to saying what he would do about it Mm. he is his reply was simply well i'll do what's right for the people
0: that's such a great politician line he likes to do that a lot i'll do what's right for the people he's really skilled at that he's great at dodging questions he doesn't want to answer and flipping them around Mm. i know that this has been kind of a tricky situation for him because on the one hand he really wants to take credit for getting it overturned, and he has on different occasions.
1: Oh, he that's what he kept going back to. Yeah. He said, you need to focus on the fact that I put them on the...
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he did. I think he appointed more federal judges during his term in office than any president in modern American history. So in terms of things he actually did, that's a big one. Um, now, of course, as someone on the left, I don't like the people he appointed... But he did appoint a lot of people, so that's going to give him, I think, a lot of credibility to the average Republican going forward. And then obviously you have someone like DeSantis who's passing a lot of legislation in Florida. It's going to be interesting seeing how they kind of clash heads. I know DeSantis, I think, has to walk that line a little more carefully, both probably in terms of personality but also just from a strategic perspective because Trump really does still have such a strong grasp on the Republican Party as a whole. I don't think DeSantis feels comfortable attacking him as outright as Trump might attack him. So it's kind of like this imbalance of power. So I don't know how he's going to navigate that. Definitely a tricky situation for him. I know his recent... <laughs> I was looking. You had told me you had brought up that his campaign launch was a disaster on Twitter. So I looked into it a little bit and that's just hilarious. I don't know why he even tried to do that.
1: Well, he was being supported by Elon Musk.
0: That's true. It's just it seems like a big risk to try and launch your campaign on social media like that as opposed to just having, you know, your standard rally or event, you know, like on cable television.
1: Well, he was he was confident that Elon Musk being who he is to Twitter that it would have all the more credibility to his yeah, launch.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I guess cuz I mean Elon Musk is <clears throat> increasingly a very important figure on the right. And I find that really interesting with him because I don't know exactly how he squares those two things. Because socially, he's definitely, I wouldn't call him like a conservative necessarily. He's probably kind of a centrist, but centrists agree with conservatives on a lot of different things. So I think in terms of social policy, he's pretty on board with Republicans. But at that same time, A lot of his career has been spent developing technologies to deal with the realities of climate change, which the party that he's most in bed with, either A, seems to think it doesn't exist, or B, thinks it exists, but we shouldn't do anything about it. And they're taking billions of dollars from fossil fuel companies. So I find that kind of like an interesting cognitive dissonance from him.
1: Well, I think what's, you have to understand that Elon Musk as a corporate entity why the advantage for him to be more on the right exists. Oh, yeah. And also, I mean, didn't he? Didn't everything that he began to do in technology, wasn't that all subsidized by the government?
0: Oh, yeah, heavily subsidized. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with us subsidizing developing technologies. I'm fine with that. I just think it's really like dishonest communication from him. To speak so much about you know, how the government uh, doesn't belong in the market and how the government is fundamentally inefficient compared to the market and all these things when his companies wouldn't exist without government funding. A lot of the technologies he uses were developed initially through government-backed research and development. As is most research and development in the United States, very little of it comes from private funding. I mean – most of the technology that we use on a day-to-day basis the microchip the internet all of that was developed using government funding so for him to come out with this odd like kind of anti-government stance in regards to economics i just think is really ironic but like you said he has a kind of a financial incentive to do so because he definitely can't ally himself with you know the more progressive wing of the democratic party because they want to tax him they might even want to break up some of his companies so, yeah, of course, he's he's kind of been pushed, I guess, into the arms of the right. Whether or not he actually belongs there, kind of a tricky situation. But you see that with a lot of people. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and as far as
0: environmentally,
1: have you ever seen where they mine?
0: Yeah, in the Congo, mm-hmm. where they mine for lithium and cobalt and all these different minerals? Yeah, I mean, electric cars as a technology, I... I haven't – I mean obviously I'm not a climate scientist nor am I an engineer, so I can't really speak with a high degree of expertise on these issues. But I have heard some people say that the mineral inputs that you have to acquire in order to build an electric car, the total like carbon footprint of that process takes years for it to recoup through usage, right? So it may not use gas like an – like, you know, a normal combustion engine, but the resources that go into producing it in the first place are so massive that it takes several years to recoup it. And also, another silly thing about electric cars, at least right now, if you're charging an electric car on an electric grid that is powered by coal, that's not really green energy. Now, of course... The argument would be, well, yeah, we get to the point where we have electric cars and then we transition the grid to a green grid, which, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I'm totally fine with that. But like right now, I don't think you can really act like you're saving the planet if you have an electric car in a state where most of your energy is coming from either natural gas or coal.
1: Last week we touched on the possible debt default Mm -hmm. and you went into somewhat of an explanation. Yeah. But one of my questions was, like, budget-wise, what was on the chopping block in the budget that the Republicans have proposed now to Biden? What is
0: that proposal? So my understanding of some of the things that they're wanting in their negotiations with Biden, um, one of the big things they're pushing for, obviously, is just a general across-the-board cut in spending. But, of course, there are certain categories where they want that those spending cuts to be targeted. So they don't want to cut military spending, which is ironic because you've heard a lot of Republican talk around the last few months about, well, we're sending too much money to Ukraine, all this sort of thing, but they still don't want to cut the military budget. They're wanting to cut, I think it was around roughly 8% in spending. And the Democrats came out and said that that would result on average in like a 22% spending cut on law enforcement. And what was the other one? Oh, that's what it was. So it would result in a 22% cut in federal spending for law enforcement and for education. That's what they have up on the chopping block.
1: So they say that it's not about the budget, but it is about the budget. And the budget had already been pre-approved. They allocated funds for the budget. Mm -hmm. So does all this mean that they exceeded what they had allocated for, and so now they're trying to make up the deficit?
0: No, not necessarily. Like, when they approve spending, obviously a lot of that is financed through deficit spending, in which case we sell bonds to investors, be they foreign or domestic, um, and then we take that money and then we spend it, and then later we have to pay back that bond plus interest. The issue now is that the amount of money that we have to pay back has exceeded the debt ceiling that we had set in place several years before. So now we're at a situation where we might not pay the money that we've already promised to pay back. So this has nothing to do with new spending. It's things that we've already paid for. It's bills we already have accrued that now are at risk of potentially us not paying back.
1: Well, why... Do they want to cut spending in certain areas then
0: if it's not about a budget? It's, well, it is about a budget, right? They're using the debt ceiling as a bargaining chip to pass a budget that is more in line with Republican interests, which is always going to be cutting welfare spending, increasing spending for the military. That is their playbook. Um, and the debt ceiling is just a tool for them to use towards that end. Um, they are without a doubt holding Americans hostage with this situation because they know that that gives them tremendous leverage and then they can use that as a bludgeon to force the Democrats to do what they want them to do in regards to the budget. Um, and it's just it's interesting that the things that Republicans are always so obsessed with cutting is any of our like social security programs. So, what little form of a social safety net we have in the United States, Republicans always want to take a knife to it and cut holes in it. An interesting thing that they do, and I was talking with one of my friends about this the other day, it's this sort of like self fulfilling prophecy that they do. So, they come in and they find a program that they don't like and they say, well, this is wasteful. You know, this these bloated welfare programs are making everyone dependent on the government. So, we're going to cut funding for this program, right? We're going to cut a hole in this part of the social safety net. And then a few years or a few months go by, and they look at that program. They will, they look at it and they go, Well, this program obviously isn't working. Look how many people are still falling through the cracks. Well, obviously, this is wasteful. We need to cut, we need to cut its spending some more. And essentially, what they're doing is they're making the program ineffective by defunding it, and then using that ineffectiveness as a pretext for further defunding. And it's repeat, rinse, repeat, ad nauseum until eventually you get to a point where your social safety net is so full of holes that it's barely catching anyone. And then obviously they use that as further justification for what they were doing in the first place.
1: So with social security and the demographic is such that people are aging out and will be able to be compensated for what they have paid in.
0: Yeah. So what is their solution to that? Well, with the budget that they're recommending, I don't think they're trying to cut Social Security because they know that would be political suicide for them to do so, as has been demonstrated over the past several months. I mean, really, ever since Joe Biden kind of called them out for it in his State of the Union address, they have really eased up on that. And you even see Trump like attacking DeSantis for that in his political ads. I think Republicans realize especially considering their voting demographic is increasingly growing older and older, cutting Social Security or privatizing Social Security isn't something that's politically feasible as a party platform. Even though they might try and find a way to slip in some reforms to it, um, it's not something they can run on necessarily and be successful. So I think they realize that. You and I had
1: discussed this earlier and I was trying to recall where I had heard trump and i thought it was recently him say that obama had left him with empty cupboards that there was no ammunition mm-hmm. and then now we were sending our excess ammunition to ukraine yeah so i was like well one statement has to be true and one statement has to be false if We didn't have anything and now we have excess and we're sending over there. But then you set me straight on what you thought actually happened.
0: Yeah, it it had just been – there had just been some time that had passed. So I guess whenever Trump had taken office, you know, Obama had been doing a lot of – we'd basically been dropping a lot of bombs in the Middle East, right? So we were running low on some key military hardware – And my understanding is that they just invested and got some of those stocks back up. But now we're once again depleting some of our important stocks. I think of Javelin missiles, Stinger missile systems, all those sorts of things. I think we've sent like anywhere from like one third to roughly one half of our surplus of some of those items over to Ukraine. Um, And it's going to take time to get those rebuilt, especially considering that we're still dealing with certain shortages of important materials and also with tensions increasing in China and Taiwan, that's where most of the chips that we use for these military devices come from. So if a conflict was to break out there, we're kind of in a precarious situation because we're running low on our domestic surplus of some of these supplies and we wouldn't be able to source them because let's say China was to put up you know, some sort of trade barrier in Taiwan and present ships from passing through the Taiwan Strait. We're not getting chips to rebuild those anytime soon. Um, That is one good thing about Biden that I actually really like, and not just Biden, Congress as a whole. They're starting to take some of those supply chain concerns more seriously, and there's been a lot more talk, and not just talk, but action towards reshoring some of our most vital supply chains. Um, That's what the CHIPS Act was all about, landmark investment into – high-end microchip manufacturing in the United States, which is absolutely vital, especially considering what's been going on with Taiwan because they produce a massive majority of the high-end microchips that are used across the globe.
1: Is it true that the technology was in... We invented the technology, but we outsourced it to Taiwan to manufacture?
0: We do that with a lot of different things. I think the United States, in terms of engineering, we are like the global powerhouse, We designed the best technology in the world by and large, especially in regards to like computers and electronics. But yeah, we produced a lot of those things outside of the U.S. um, because for a long time there was just a pure financial incentive to do so and regulatory incentives. Um, It was just easier to get those things built in somewhere like Southeast Asia um, because they had the labor that was skilled enough to do it, but they were cheaper than U.S. workers – and they didn't have all the same regulations and hurdles that you had to jump through. Um, now, in China, that's a bit different. You know, Obviously, their economy is set up differently than it is here. So there were some different regulatory hurdles. hurdles but overall, yeah, we produce a lot of our most vital electronic equipment overseas. So are we bringing that back home? Uh, bringing it back might not necessarily be the right way to think about it it's kind of hard to bring that stuff back. It's a lot easier to just invest in it directly here at home and build it up from the ground, which is what the CHIPS Act was all about. So it wasn't like we went to these microchip companies and told them, hey, you have to shut down your factory in Taiwan and come back. Instead, we said, we're going to invest into building new factories here in the United States so that we can get our domestic production up so that if something were to happen in Taiwan, we'd be prepared for it. Now, we're not prepared for it yet. We're still a few years out from that because it takes time to get these processes and these facilities up. And Why
1: added. did we wait so long?
0: Short-sightedness and the money was good while it lasted. Um, and a lot of it just our domestic political scene has been so sidetracked by other issues for so long that I think these more strategic concerns were kind of like put to the side. But now they've become so glaringly obvious and COVID really proved the point. Um, of just how fragile some of our global supply chains can be. I think it was a wake up call, not only for American consumers and voters, but for politicians as well.
1: As we, to my understanding, have mostly recuperated from the supply chain issues as a result of COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. But By yet, some, somewhat, yeah. Go ahead.
1: But yet, we have persistent inflation and What I was reading this morning from different sources was just a lot of corporate greed, corporate price gouging. Yeah. That once it went up, it stayed up. Mm -hmm. And they realized they could charge twice as much for something Mm. Um, and still make the same amount of money even if they sold less.
0: Yeah, or in many cases they made more money. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, basically what happened was... So there were genuine supply shortages as a result of COVID, and that pushed up prices. But then what that did is it set in the American consumer's mind an expectation of inflation. And then corporations were able to come in and use those inflation expectations as a pretext for unjustified price raises that weren't reflected in the underlying costs. And that's what you're talking about with price gouging. They, they saw it as an opportunity to raise prices that consumers wouldn't throw too much of a fuss about because they were expecting it to begin with. And that's pretty common. And the, the trouble with that is there's not one, like, really good policy that you can use to kind of attack that. Um, I've heard some people talk about a windfall corporate profits tax, but that's not going to fix the fact that they've raised their prices. You know, Explain you
1: can, what a windfall um, tax basically is. Basically, it's like
0: a one-time tax on a significant profit that a company has made. right? So like, there was a lot of talk of it as we were coming out of COVID because some of these massive tech corporations had made a killing during that time. Um, Amazon, Facebook, all of these companies. Not only because they were one of some of the few corporations that were allowed to stay open, but they sucked up a lot of market share during that time that were previously going to smaller businesses. They either got closed down or just weren't able to compete in that sort of difficult time. Um, and you, you heard a lot of people, progressives especially, talking about, well, we need a windfall corporate profit tax because these companies have earned such a tremendous sum of money over this period in time. And we need to come in there and implement like a one time tax at a significant rate um, to take back some of those profits and then redistribute it. Um, and some people have been talking about that as potentially a way to deal with corporate price gouging, but I don't see how that would actually solve the underlying issue. Um, because if you do that, they might raise prices even more to try and recover what they would view as lost profits. And you could get in a situation where the corporations basically go to war with the government in a tit-for-tat type of thing. And that's a situation that I think American consumers could best avoid. Um, another possible solution is price controls. Those don't tend to work very well. Um, historically, when price controls have been implemented, they either cause massive surpluses or shortages. Um, so that's not really a great solution either. It seems to me there might not be a good solution to this other than you know enforcing what laws and regulations we already have on the books, um, applying pressure to these companies through every legal method that we know how, and then in addition – it's probably just gonna have to come down over time as inflation expectations decrease through both the action that the fed is taking and also just economic issues kind of normalizing some of those prices are starting to come down already and they'll probably continue to do so into the future it's one of those things that might just take time here's some interesting facts
1: i wrote this down corporate profits hit a record high in the second quarter in 2022 and rose 6.6% year over year. Corporate pre-tax profits reached record highs in the final quarter of 2022. Biggest corporations in the S&P 500 also had record profits in 2022. Corporate profit margins in 2022 hit their highest level since 1950.
0: 50. Okay. So that's what I was going to ask you about because sometimes you hear stats like that and it sounds really bad, but then you kind of have to consider it. So corporations cor- collecting record profits in terms of like a net number doesn't surprise me because if you think about it this way, if a, if an economy is growing – and if the value of the dollar is decreasing every year, so you have like a little bit of inflation, you'd expect corporations to be hitting record profits every few years. That's how it should work if the economy growing. But the profit margin, that's what's interesting because that tells you well, how much of a markup are they putting on top of their costs. If that's hitting a record high, that is evidence of price gouging. Well, so apparently... That's interesting. You said it's the highest <laughs> since the 1950s? Since
1: 1950, yeah. yes. So let's talk about... Inflation and crushing the average American and the mm-hmm. working class. Do you see any ease in that happening anytime soon?
0: Inflation has peaked. Um, it is starting. It's starting to decline. It's difficult to say how much of that is because of what the Fed is doing. And how much of that is just a result of supply chains starting to normalize and supply and demand coming more towards equilibrium with each other? Um, Because the big thing with Fed policy is that it's pretty commonly known, especially among economists that study this sort of thing, that Federal Reserve policy can take months, sometimes even years, to really have an effect on the economy because it has to cycle through the system. Um, So the fact that we're already starting to see inflation numbers come down suggests one of two things. Either A, um, it doesn't have that much to do with Fed policy, or B, it has to do with Fed policy, but the Fed policy that was enacted like over a year ago, which would suggest that further rate hikes, we don't really know what effect that's going to have because we haven't even seen the full effects of the rate heights that have already gone into effect. So there have been some concerns, and I don't know to what degree these are warranted. But I've even seen some economists talk about, well, we need to be worried about a potential deflationary event, because if we keep hiking rates at a time when we're already seeing decreasing inflation from previous rate hikes, we might get into a situation where we trigger a full-blown recession, incidentally, because we jumped the gun and didn't wait to see the results of what we'd already done in the past.
1: Interesting. Well, I hope the average American can hang on that long
0: Yeah, I know. I know. It's a tough time. And another thing that's – the Fed is looking at some mixed signals right now because tradition – they have a dual mandate. And what that means is they're really concerned about two things, full employment and price stability. Historically, price stability has taken a relative precedent over full employment. So – If prices start to go up too much, they're more than willing to try and cut jobs in the economy to get price stability in order with their inflation target for the year. Um, So they look at the labor market because they see a correlation between these two things because basically the explanation is – and this goes back to Keynesian economics. There's this concept known as the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and that's the Nehru. And it's this hypothetical number where they say if unemployment dips below that number, it's going to cause runaway inflation. So we need to try and target unemployment around that number to prevent prices from getting out of control. So when they're looking at inflation in the economy now, they're attributing a lot of that to a labor market that they consider to be too tight. Um, Even though if you look at the data, it seems that wages are actually trailing inflation. So they can't be the cause If they're behind inflation to begin with, but that just goes back to that's the economic orthodoxy of the moment. So what they're really trying to do is they're trying to shed jobs in the economy. Um, And they're trying to do that through rate hikes. Now, they're running into a bit of an issue, and it's kind of confusing to some people because inflation is coming down, but the rate hikes don't seem to be having a significant effect on the labor market, which is still running really hot. It's still really tight. Um, I think there is still well in excess of one job per unemployed person that's looking for work. So we have more job openings right now than we have people that are actually looking for jobs. Um, And that's causing wages to go up. But inflation is still higher than wage growth. But that's really tricky for the Fed to manage because on the one hand, they're getting good inflation reports. But on the other hand, they're looking and they're saying, well, the labor market is still hot. We might need to keep raising rates to try and bring that down and try and loosen that market up a little bit. But at the same time, they're also looking at those inflation numbers and go, well, if we keep hiking rates, then we might end up triggering a recession. So they're in a really kind of tricky scenario, and it seems that's why they're kind of not doing a whole lot at the moment. Um, They're kind of hesitant to raise rates, um, and that's kind of what they've also been communicating to investors and the media as well.
1: So as far as, I think we all understand what the financial situation here at home is, but as far as like the global market and what effect has the sanctions had against Russia?
0: Yeah, so whenever Russia first invaded Ukraine, one of the first things that we took massive action on was imposing very strong and very swift financial sanctions against them. Um, These were aimed at all sorts of things. We froze assets. um, We imposed certain trade barriers on them. um, We made agreements with certain ally countries um, not to import certain products that they produce. Or, like, for example, we imposed a price cap on Russian oil, basically trying—basically the entire point of that was we instructed some of our allies not to buy Russian oil above a certain price, and the intention with that— was to starve them of revenue, to try and basically bankrupt their war effort and cause so much chaos and economic unrest within Russia that it became politically disadvantageous for Putin to continue his war of aggression in Ukraine. That didn't really work. Um, and this is kind of a long-standing debate among some people that are interested in foreign policy and also economics, which is how well do sanctions actually achieve their desired goals? Um, because we can look at Russia as an example. We can also look at countries like Cuba as an example. I mean, we've had a trade embargo on Cuba for decades, and we still have not achieved the desired effect there. Um, And it seems that there's something fundamentally broken in the logic that we use whenever we're thinking sanctions are going to achieve the desired effect. Because like I said, the typical... Point is to provide – to create so much pressure within that country that the population in turn exerts pressure on their own government to kind of bend to the will of American interests. It seems usually that actually kind of has a backfire effect and it just pisses off the people that live in that country and it causes relationships to even further deteriorate. In the case of Russia, it's kind of a really interesting turn of events because one, I think it's made a lot of other countries somewhat wary of the US dollar. And the reason being was we took unprecedented steps to freeze assets that were denominated in US dollars within Russia and make them fundamentally unusable by the people that held them. And a lot of other countries, especially countries that don't necessarily have the best relationship with the US, that's made them very weary of it because they think, well, if they did it to Russia, they could do it to us. This poses a security threat to us. So we might need to start looking at other avenues, um, other currencies to start trading in. And you're already starting to see some of that in the BRICS countries. They're talking about possibly creating their own form of um, currency within that block. How well that would work remains to be seen, but I can understand the rationale for it. Um, It it seems that our sanctions against Russia have kind of pushed the countries that we don't have great relationships with into each other's open arms, essentially. Um, And it is in some ways – kind of weakened the U.S. dollar. Now, I mean that relatively. I don't mean that absolutely. I don't think the U.S. dollar is going anywhere anytime soon as a global currency. But we can see already that India is buying Russian oil in current, in rubles or in you know um, India's own currency. And we're starting to see that with China as well. We're starting to see oil transactions that are settled in a currency that isn't U.S. dollars, which at least in modern history is relatively rare. You didn't see that too often. There's a reason the U.S. dollar is commonly referred to as the petrodollar, because it was the standard currency for settling oil transactions on the global markets. That's starting to deteriorate a little bit. Now, like I said, I don't think the dollar is going anywhere anytime soon. There's simply too much incentive for people to keep using it. Um, The global financial system is so complex, and it's built upon the status quo of the dollar being the reserve, but... It has weakened the dollar's position, relatively speaking, and it has actually, in some ways, our sanctions against Russia has made the BRICS alliance stronger because now they realize they all face a common security risk, which is the wrath of the U.S. regulatory agencies um, and the wrath of U.S. financial sanctions and the havoc that could potentially wreak on their respective economies if they don't bend to Washington's will.
1: So has America, one, damaged our relationship with some countries that should have been our allies, and then pair that with our utter support in proxy war <laughs> with Russia mm-hmm. through Ukraine. We are depleting our ammunition here at home. Why, why, why have, are we not pushing and trying to get those two countries to negotiate And come to a peace agreement
0: I think it's a few things in terms of why we're not pushing for a peace agreement one the Ukrainians themselves kind of want Russia to completely leave their territory now that might be kind of a fool's dream you know How long they can hold out against a country with that large of a population, that large of an economic engine, really remains to be seen. They're doing a good job resisting now, but Russia in the long run might be able to just throw so many bodies at the problem that it's just overwhelming. We don't really know. Um, In terms of why Western interests aren't pushing as much for peace in Ukraine, I really think it boils down to national interest. There is at least the perception – in Washington is we have an interest in weakening the Russian economy. Um, we have an interest in weakening Russia's position on the international stage and making them out to be, you know, bad actors. We have an interest in weakening, weakening their military. Um, and a lot of this just dates back to a lot of the strategies that we took after the end of the Cold War in pursuing this relationship of hostility with Russia, instead of trying to build a more productive relationship with them. Now, of course, there are people who would say, well, it's kind of hard to build a productive relationship with a dictatorship that's openly opposed, opposed to Western democracy and liberalism. And there are good points to be made there. I mean, don't get me wrong. Russia is not blameless. They are the aggressors in the situation. Um, but from you know a realistic perspective, that is what we're doing in Ukraine. And there's also the symbolic aspect of it, which is Ukraine, at least compared to Russia, is the more democratic country. They are the more westernized country. And this is the bloodiest conflict in Europe since World War II. So those are all reasons that the U.S. thinks we need to be involved there and try and promote stability in Europe, because a stable Europe um, translates into a safer and more prosperous America and Western world as a whole. Um, And there's a reason that we take that so seriously, because up until the end of World War II and you know the creation of NATO and all of these things, Europe was constantly at war with each other for hundreds of years. I mean the soils of Europe are soaked with centuries worth of blood, and we really want to avoid a scenario in which that becomes normalized again. And we see Russian aggression in Ukraine as a potential means towards that becoming normalized again, so we want to nip it in the bud basically while we can before it gets out of control. But, yeah, there are definitely downsides to it as well. There's definitely an aspect of it that is short-sighted because we have driven Russia closer to the hands of our enemies. We have shown some countries that we have slightly deteriorating relationships with that we're willing to engage in these really strict financial sanctions that might make them wary of using U.S.-denominated currencies. Um, so, yeah, we're. I, I think... Really, what it's led to is this sort of coalescing of forces um, and a creation of a more multipolar world. And I think that's only become more and more evident. I mean, we see it with China. They're forming a somewhat tighter relationship with Russia, although they're trying to stay neutral in this. They depend on Russia for a variety of important imports, you know, food, oil, fossil fuels, those sorts of things. So they don't have the luxury like the United States does of just condemning them outright because... They rely on Russia for a lot of things that we don't in the United States rely on other countries for, and that puts us in a unique position. But I think to some other countries, our position can seem very unfair because they perceive it as, well, yeah, of course you guys can afford to do these sorts of sanctions. If we do that here, our people starve, our people freeze. It's not as simple for us as it is for you, and I think that's breeded some animosity in the global community. Even in Europe, you see – you know, some of these countries, they're not willing to go as far as the United States is specifically in regards to restrictions on oil and gas imports because they need Russian fossil fuels in order to merely keep their economy going. So it's definitely sowed some discord in the international community for sure.
1: If we can, let's go back to the U.S. debt default Okay, and explain what the consequences of a debt default would mean
0: okay in order to explain the consequences i kind of first need to explain what that even means so all the u.s national debt is is the u.s treasury bond market our debt exists as treasury bonds so we sell a bond to an investor they give us money the government spends that money and then once that bond becomes due they pay it back plus interest um That's all the national debt is. That debt is owned by both people here in the US. Some of it is owned by foreign governments. And you often hear a lot of talk about, well, you know, we're borrowing money from China. That's not really how it works. What happens is when we trade with China, we buy Chinese products using US dollars. They then take those US dollars that they got from selling things to us and they use it to buy treasury bonds because – They can earn an interest rate on those treasury bonds that makes it more appealing than just letting that money sit in a vault somewhere, but it doesn't give them any leverage over us. But because of that, treasury bonds have now become one of the most widely circulated and safe securities in the global marketplace. Um, They exist kind of as the foundation for a lot of financial activity, not only in the United States, but globally. They serve as almost like a benchmark for certain investments because they're considered the safest investment. They're the bond of the government of the strongest and largest economy on earth. There's nothing safer than U.S. Treasury bond, or at least that's the perception. So what happens if the U.S. Treasury bond is no longer secure? What happens if the U.S. Treasury bond is no longer viewed as the safest investment? And that's exactly what would happen in a debt default because imagine for the past several decades, you buy a Treasury bond, you get paid when that bond matures. What would happen in the case of a debt default Whoever's unlucky enough to be stuck with those bonds that become mature after June 1st, they just don't get paid. And that's going to cause the value of those bonds to decrease rapidly, which is going to cause interest rates to shoot up. And consequently, that could cause a recession, not only in the United States, but a global recession. And there was a study that came out, and I'd have to look and find who exactly published it. But it was a reputable source, and you know maybe we can include it um, on the podcast here. We can flash it on the screen or something. But… They were, they did a study or kind of a forecast, and they said that there are basically two scenarios that could happen with a debt default. If we got it under control quickly, it would be a mild recession. If it took weeks to get it under control, it could be as bad as 2008. Damn. Yeah, it's a very, very serious issue. And another thing you have to realize, I mean, like I said, this isn't just limited to the U.S. economy. Something like 60% of global currency reserves exist in the form of U.S. dollars. A lot of that exists in the form of treasury bonds. What happens if 40% of global currency reserves suddenly drop in value? You're looking at global financial upheaval. And it's something that you can't just fix within a few months. I mean, the consequences of this would take forever to clean up.
1: They all knew there was a June 1 deadline. Why did they not start negotiating the left and the right?
0: Brinksmanship. They're treating it like a giant game of chicken. Basically seeing who's going to back out of the ring first out of fear. But I fear they kind of got their antlers locked and hopefully they can work something out. I know they're trying to do that today. Um, Before they go on vacation? Yeah, before they go on their luxurious vacation to their nice uh, summer homes.
1: What do you think, let's take it from either, let's take it from the left and from the right, what do you think the biggest lies are being told to Americans
0: by the left in general? I'm thinking. You've got to remember, as a person on the left, this is kind of a difficult question. So I would say it's not necessarily that they are lies. I feel like sometimes they're miscommunicated to seem not worse than they are, but they're communicated in such a way that it almost seems like hopeless for people, right? So I think it's really important to talk about systemic oppression, systemic unfairness. You know, these are issues that... There are certain issues that affect people that aren't just the result of their individual decisions, but are merely the result of the society that we live in. I think sometimes the left has an issue communicating about these things in such a way so that it makes people feel like they are powerless and without agency and mere victims to social forces. Um, I think a far more empowering message would be: Yes, these are there are social forces in the society that oppress people, absolutely. But the only way that we're going we're ever going to be able to properly tackle those issues is for you to take the agency and recognize your power and get involved, be as active as you possibly can. Try to make the right decisions you can to make your life better, but also be politically involved um, and be active because you also see some people, especially on the more progressive side of the left, where they almost feel like it's hopeless. They see our country is so corrupted by, you know, the capitalist class. They see all of our regulatory agencies captured by corporate ownership essentially, and they get this sort of nihilistic view of politics where they think, well, what point is it even voting? I don't even want to be involved. Um, It's a waste of time. I don't want to get my hopes up for something that's never going to materialize. My message to those people would be your political apathy is manufactured by a group of people who want to see you give up because they know that the most dangerous thing are the people and if they can get the people to give up and not even fight back there's nothing they want more than that so don't give into that don't give into that hopelessness because even though it's going to be hard bad odds are always better than giving up they're always better so you think
1: it is an issue of messaging
0: I think it's an issue of messaging And I think some people just don't place enough proper emphasis on the agency that individuals have to make their lives better because, yes, it is true that we have racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia, um, elitism and classism and all of those things have an impact on your life without a doubt. But if you give up and you let yourself be made a victim to those forces, you're throwing your cards on the table. You're throwing the towel in. And I don't think that that is an empowering message to be giving to young people and also I think a political movement made up of people like that who don't view themselves as having any power, who view themselves as being victims, that is not a political movement that's going to have the teeth necessary to confront these social forces and these groups within society that need to be confronted. We need to have the courage. We need to have the strength to attack. These forces these problems and we can't do it if we view ourselves as powerless victims. Give me some examples Um, Okay, what's a good example? Um, One good example might be climate change There are some people who are climate doomers and they say well look um, Fossil fuel companies have so much influence in our country. They bankroll both sides of our political spectrum Um, the best thing that we've got so far are just like some mild regulations and some investments. They basically say the climate investments we need are so politically unfeasible that they'll never happen, and therefore we are doomed to just basically the worst-case scenario of climate change that we could imagine, sea level rise, droughts, famines, all those sorts of things, and there's nothing we can do about it, so we should just give up. Um, So you think that...
1: The left has an issue with messaging. I'm trying to clarify (laughs) what you just said. Uh,
0: I'm trying to say, I think sometimes the left, because the left is generally concerned with collective problems, right? So they're generally more concerned with systemic issues in society. And if you look at conservative messaging, they're typically more focused on individual issues. And you can just you notice this in how they talk about things. So conservatives will say, well you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or if you're concerned about the environment, you know, stop wasting so much electricity. It's always individual solutions. And then the left typically proposes more collective solutions. But I think sometimes the left in proposing those collective solutions, they rob individuals of their agency and make them out to seem like they're powerless to social forces. And my message would be, I think people need to be empowered not only to confront the problems in their own lives, but also because a political movement made up of empowered people is going to be more effective at achieving the goals that people on the left want to see achieved.
1: Okay. So if that is their messaging, how is the right countering that?
0: Well, I mean, the right typically paints the left as if they're completely opposed to individual accountability and... Um, They're all just little victims. They're constantly whining about society while doing nothing to change it and that you know they shouldn't go to the government looking for help when they're not even taking the steps necessary to get their own life in order and make good decisions on behalf of their own lives. Um, So the right much more sells this message of individual responsibility and individual action and that being the means necessary to progress as a society. Um, And that's also not entirely true because there are systemic forces – that have an effect on not only the decisions that an individual makes, but the potential opportunities that they have to make those decisions. So I think both approaches are necessary. I think you need a message of individual responsibility and collective responsibility. So you need to take people and say, hey, look, you need to make the best decisions possible for your life. And, you know, there are going to be social forces that are opposed to you and what you want to do. That's absolutely true. We can deal with that politically, but... In spite of that, you still need to do what you can to try and improve your own lot. Um, And I think those two approaches wedded together are kind of the appropriate thing to do because individual responsibility matters, but so do systemic factors as well. Okay, so now let's flip that.
1: What do you think are the misconceptions that the
0: right portrays to the American people? I think they're specifically the more populist faction on the right, has identified certain concerns that Americans have that I think are warranted, economic concerns, social concerns, because I think most people, especially working-class Americans, they feel that something's wrong. They can tell their money doesn't go as far as it used to. They can tell things are more expensive. Um, They can tell that they feel they don't have as much voice in some of our political processes as they used to. Um, It definitely feels like... The sense of community is deteriorating. Um, I think the biggest misconception that the right presents to Americans is that they identify those problems, but then they attribute them to all the wrong causes, right? So they might look at something like wage stagnation and they might blame it on immigrants. They might look at something like deteriorating social fabric and blame it on wokeness or trans people or secularism, or indoctrination in the schools. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's a misattribution of cause to these problems that are very real.
1: Does indoctrination...
0: Are you ready for my hot take on indoctrination?
1: Well, let me...
0: <laughs> because I'm not exactly... Go ahead, and ask your question.
1: So when I think of indoctrination and how it is being used today... It is because something is changing and being taught in opposition to what
0: you want to believe. Mm -hmm.
1: So Indoctrination, I I
0: actually don't think, I don't know if it necessarily means as much as people think it does. Because people typically compare it to what they consider neutral education. So indoctrination, as it is typically used by people, Generally what they really mean when they say that is they just mean something is being taught that stands in opposition to what they believe or what they want to be taught. Um, I don't think it really has this concrete definition that people want to pretend. I I don't know if you can look at any type of education and just outright say that's indoctrination and that isn't Um, because I think there's kind of this idea that a lot of people have of this neutral education – um, but coincidentally, one person's version of neutral education commonly looks to someone else like indoctrination because one person's version of neutral education is typically going to be, well, we're going to teach what I believe. Um, I don't think you can fully remove bias from education. And the reason's pretty simple there are an infinite number of facts. And there are nearly an infinite number of interpreting those facts. In order for you to choose the facts and choose the interpretation, you are imposing a value judgment on top of it, which is bias. Um, So really you just have different ways of looking at history. You're looking at social science. You're looking at economics. Um, They're all biased. Um, Even the ones that people might consider it to be the most neutral, well, those are just biased towards the status quo – But they might seem extremely biased to someone that's out on the fringes, right? So a communist is going to look at the traditional teaching of economics in a college classroom. They're going to say that's capitalist indoctrination. Um, A hardcore free market person is going to look at the same class and they're going to say, well, that's socialist indoctrination because they're teaching that the government has a role to play in capitalism. These two opinions can't both be right at the same time. It's just people taking a different perspective on the same set of facts. And that's inherent. That will always be inherent. And it's going to be most obvious at a time when we're starting to see a lot of educational change because we're seeing a lot of social change. So we're changing the way that we're discussing these topics. And it's going to seem to people that prefer the status quo as indoctrination.
1: Well, and I believe it is going to be a term we hear more and more of
0: I guess my but, question would but just be, but I
1: appreciate your definition of it because I was thinking, well, if someone is not a religious person or mm-hmm. they have their preferred faith, what has the other side thought of their preference to indoctrinate them? Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't, I don't know.
0: I think it's a very subjective thing. I don't think it's—I don't think there is such—I don't know if there's a such thing as objective indoctrination. I mean, ideally, an education isn't just going to teach you what to think. It's going to teach you how to think. But there are some classes, there are some, course, there are some courses where the teaching what to think is inherent in the subject itself. Like, math doesn't just teach you how to think about math. It has an obligation to teach you the correct way to do math. History— preferably would teach you how to analyze history on your own, but it's still going to teach certain events that happened and in doing so they're going to focus on certain facts, certain perspectives and that's going to paint a biased version of that event because you have to leave things out. Politicians have a really interesting skill of being able to present or create problems that then they can turn around and claim credit for solving. Mm-hmm. So they make up an issue and then they turn around and say, well, look at this problem. You need me to help you fix it. In the upcoming elections,
1: if it comes down to either Trump or Biden, what are the pros and cons for either?
0: Okay, Um, Yeah, that's a good question. So usually when I'm thinking about political candidates, I like to consider two main things about them. So one is their like kind of more personal attributes, character traits, and then the other is the policies and ideologies that they're likely to advocate and support. So I guess I'll start with Trump. Um, In terms of his character and attributes, I think there are pros and cons there. Um, I think the pros are that he is he's tough, right? He's not afraid of a fight. He's not going to back down. He's very aggressive and that can be good in certain contexts. Um, he is without a doubt a showman at heart. He's a master of spectacle. He knows how to get attention on himself and keep it there. Um, But there are also downsides to that, somewhat narcissistic behavior. And I think he really struggles with more soft diplomacy that's built not on aggression but more so cooperation between himself and not only other politicians but especially – Um, other heads of state. Um, There's a reason that I think a lot of people that are deep into foreign relations consider him to be very weak in that area, and a lot of that I think is – I think he struggles with things that he can't control, and I think heads of state definitely fall into that category. He has a tendency to want to strong-arm people, and that is not always the best approach in forging and maintaining strong international relationships. Um, in terms of his policy, his economic policy is pretty weak. His tax cuts cost more than they actually paid for in terms of economic growth. Most of the benefits of that went to the wealthy, which increased inequality, cost us um, some in terms of economic growth, cost us some jobs. It wasn't really a great um, piece of legislation overall. His tariffs were a colossal failure. Um, Whatever the intended purpose was, they did not achieve that. Um, If they were intended to bring jobs back to the U.S., failed miserably in that regard. They simply passed on increased prices to U.S. consumers for imported products. Um, His social policy, not great. Um, He appointed a record number of conservative judges. They got Roe v. Wade overturned, and now we're starting to see them go after various regulatory agencies like the – uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the EPA. All of these are important regulatory agencies that already are struggling to do their jobs effectively. And now we're looking at various court cases being levied against them across the country, some of which are even being heard by the Supreme Court now. Um, so yeah, overall on Trump, I, I think the negatives outweigh the positives. Um, but of course, that is one person's opinion. People are welcome to feel differently. But based on the evidence I've seen, that's the summation I would make of him. With Biden and of Hang
1: on. Explain the tariffs that Trump.
0: Yeah, enforced. so a lot of Trump's campaign, you know, he talked about how we needed to bring the jobs back to America. Um, and that was a message that played really big, especially in the Midwest and in the Rust Belt and those places, because these are the people that have probably felt the impacts of globalization more than anyone else in America in a negative way, because this was the heart of American manufacturing. And American manufacturing in terms of total employment has been in decline. And there are two reasons for that. One is that our manufacturing has gotten more efficient, so we can actually do more with less workers. Um, And the second reason is that, yeah, more and more of our manufacturing has moved overseas because for these companies, it was was financially profitable for them to do so. Um, So Trump Trump ran on bringing those jobs back. One of the core ways he said he was going to do that was through tariffs – What tariffs are is they're essentially a tax that you levy on imported goods, um, and the intention is to make them more expensive than their domestic alternatives to help support those domestic industries. Um, But the thing is, usually... What that does, and especially what it did under Trump, is simply passed on increased prices to American consumers, costing them more money, and it failed to bring jobs back because there are a lot more that go into those sorts of decisions than merely tariffs when a company is looking at whether or not they want to move jobs overseas. Um, So yeah, does that answer your question about tariffs? Okay. So now we can talk about Biden. In terms of his character's pros and weaknesses, I guess in terms of pros, he does seem to have more of a knack for diplomacy than Trump does. I think a lot of that probably just comes down to experience. Um, he's been in government for a very long time. Depending on who you talk to, that's either a great thing or a terrible thing. Um, I guess I'll make the case for whether that's great and terrible. I think it's great because let's experience does matter. I mean, imagine if Microsoft announced that they were going to hire a new CEO that never worked in corporate America before. People would look at that and they'd ridicule it because it would seem ridiculous, But for some reason, when we talk about the presidency, which is more important than any CEO for any company anywhere in the world at any point in history, we don't view it the same way. Experience matters. Competence matters. Um, And you can get experience without being in government. You know, you can get experience through law or any of these numbers. Um, Trump didn't have that. He doesn't have a legal background. He doesn't have a political background. He does have a business background, but it was in real estate, which is primarily an investing thing. He understands the interest. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. so I think Biden's experience is a plus. I think he knows how the government works. I think he knows a lot about our relationships with other countries, and I think that has given him the expertise to be able to navigate some of these situations with more poise than Trump was able to. And I think that's a big reason why the international community respects America more under Biden than it does under Trump. Um, in terms of his negatives, it's glaringly obvious he's old um Trump is also old but it seems that Biden's age and it might be it might not be his age but he seems to be his mental acuity seems to be declining at least compared to how it was several years ago especially compared to Trump he's just not as quick and he's not as smooth, especially in his speech, as he once was. Now, in his decision-making, it may be different. At the end of the day, I think a president's ability to make proper decisions matters more than what they're able to say on a stage because at the end of the day, it is a executive role. You are making decisions and you're administrating those decisions. Your job is not to make speeches. Um, in terms of his policy, my biggest issue with Biden on policy in most cases is that I don't think he went far enough. There aren't many things he did in terms of policy that I disagree with in principle. I think it just stopped short of where it should have gone. Um, But he passed several pieces of legislation that I really like. The CHIPS Act is a great example. I think it accomplishes many of the things that Trump set out to do that he failed to deliver on, which is a revitalization in American manufacturing, especially in some of our most fundamental and important technologies in the modern age, which are microchips, semiconductors, those sorts of things, Bring back – thousands of jobs to americas Um, the inflation reduction act also had landmark um funding set aside for american manufacturing and research and development um in addition to infrastructure across the country which was also an infrastructure deal as well so i think joe biden's presidency has resulted in a massive investment into the american economy and into an american manufacturing Base that is going to be far stronger than the one he was given at the beginning of his presidency. And I think the way he's gone about revitalizing American manufacturing has been much more effective than what Trump did.
1: What would you say to those who would say Biden simply put America at a standstill? We may not have gotten any better. We may not have gotten
0: any worse. I wouldn't say we got put at a standstill because there are important things that he's done. Um, And not just him. I mean, none of these legislative packages pass just merely at the suggestion of the president. You have to get Congress as well. But the CHIPS Act, big deal. That's going to be great for American supply chains. It's going to be great for our technological future going forward. Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill, all of these represent significant investments into American economic productive capacity that's going to result in higher growth and higher output going forward. You mentioned that
1: perhaps we do not know his cognitive ability um, in executive office outside of cameras.
0: Yeah, but that I, is. I, I guess my point was this. I know he sometimes struggles to speak, but it seems like the underlying thoughts when he's able to talk, still make sense and are still coherent. So I I guess my question is, is it an issue of speech or is it an issue of cognition? Because those aren't necessarily the same thing, right? Someone can struggle to speak, but they can still make better decisions than someone else. And my issue with Trump is that even though he still might be just as snarky and as witty as he always has, I still think he makes worse decisions more frequently than the Biden administration does. But
1: it's not outside the realm of possibility For example, what is her name? Feinstein?
0: Oh, Diane. Yeah.
1: And apparently her staff was making all the decisions.
0: Yeah. You're saying it's not outside the realm of possibility that something similar might be going on with Joe Biden? I hear what you're saying. When I see him talk on camera, um, it seems like he's still there enough you often see it clipped up where he like has his little blunders and sometimes they're made out to seem worse than they are. If you listen to him talk at length, he's still there. Like it, it's not to that same degree as someone like Diane Feinstein where they're like rapidly deteriorating. And let me put it this way. Biden and Trump are not the ideal candidates.
1: Well, Biden's I was going to ser- ask you what attributes do you think an ideal candidate should possess mm. both on the global stage and here on yeah. home soil. So, who's... and then also, what do you think? What do you think America needs in general? And I know that's going to be hard to answer. But as far as the platform, and as far as America getting back on our feet economically. What should we be doing? What should we be looking for in an ideal candidate?
0: Okay. So this is kind of what my ideal candidate would look like. Um, Now, obviously, this is a bit of um, fantasy that I'm going to play on myself because I don't think there's really anyone necessarily like this in the running right now. Um, But ideally, in terms of character, it'd be someone that has experience either in government or just in law. Um, I think that's important because I think that gives you an understanding of our most fundamental institutions that are necessary to effectively leading in that position. I don't think you can necessarily come in from some completely unrelated field and have a solid enough grasp on how these systems work to be able to use them not only effectively but appropriately. Um, I think it's going to be someone that is a – ideally it would be someone that's a gifted communicator – Um, If we had someone like Obama, I mean his ability to communicate and inspire a crowd is truly generational. Um, I don't see too many people like that in our politics right now. Listening to someone like Marianne Williamson, for example, I think she's tremendously articulate. Um, I think she's the closest in terms of raw, natural, gifted communicator that we have to that in the running right now. But obviously people have other concerns about her. Ideally, it would be someone that is capable of communicating and messaging in such a way that serves to draw people together as opposed to push them apart. That's very difficult in our politics today because people genuinely disagree on things. So that's a really hard thing to pull off if you're capable of doing it. In terms of policy, we need to be looking at significant reforms to some of our most fundamental institutions. Um, I mean so many of our different – Systems are either outdated or just massively dysfunctional; that they need to be significantly repaired or remade entirely. Um, we need significant tax reform. We need healthcare reform, education reform, and these are all these are all issues that could define one single presidency, much less one presidency tackling all of these issues simultaneously in a way that is. in a way that is um, satisfactory or in a way that would be necessary to actually address the issue. Do you think the
1: legacy of America in general needs to be reformed or do we just need to... instill a love for this country again?
0: I think people have to have a reason to love the country. I don't think you can just instill that in someone. I think people will love the country if they feel like it's working for them, and right now they don't feel that way, which is why you're seeing so much agitation on both the left and the right. People becoming increasingly more opposed to our institutions, becoming more opposed to the status quo, becoming more opposed... Um, to the way that things have historically been done because they see it as not working. And in a lot of cases, they're right. My fear is if we don't take this issue seriously now and start making the necessary reforms to address these concerns, that outrage is going to keep growing and keep growing. It's going to keep getting worse and worse until eventually we reach a point where we're not talking about reform. We're talking about revolution. We're talking about violence. We're getting to a point now where people are so fed up with the current system that instead of reforming it, they want to see it all burned down to the ground. And that's not a good place to be in. And that's only going to get worse unless we start genuinely addressing these problems, which we're not doing. We're taking half measures that at the very least kick the bucket down the road, if even that.
1: How do you – how would you say that America has changed for the better or for the worse within the last 25 years?
0: Um, I'd say socially we've made – Within the last few years, that's been a bit spotty, but I'd say up until like around 2016, we'd made considerable social progress, even some since then. Um, If you look at things like civil rights, especially gay rights, trans rights, those were all things that were – we were making considerable progress on those. Um, But at that same time, our economic system was rapidly deteriorating Um, and that's really been going on since the 1970s primarily. And that's something we've talked about on the podcast before. That's the rise of the neoliberal era, um, the Washington consensus. Basically, these ideals in regards to a more free market-oriented economic agenda started coming into focus. And you saw defunding of different government programs. You saw a slashing of the social safety nets. You saw privatization, deregulation in important areas. And you know, there are people that will say, well, we didn't really deregulate because we have more regulations on the books now than we had then. Well, what you have to look at is you can't just look at the total number, number of regulations. You have to look at what those regulations actually do. Because if you have one really important regulation, you get rid of it and then replace it with five crappy regulations, you've still effectively deregulated, even though the total number of regulations may have increased. And that's what we did. I mean, we effectively deregulated the financial system, um, we ended Glass Steagall which was a huge deal because that separated commercial and investment banking. Once you get those two forces intermingled, the potential for speculative asset bubbles goes through the roof. That There's a reason we've had several financial crises even within the last 20, 30 years. It's not a mystery. It's because we unraveled the system that was holding – that was creating stability within the financial system for the most part in the post-World War II era. We dismantled that system.
1: What do you think – would be the best solution do we need respect to come back to the presidential office?
0: I think we need hope that we don't just need hope Um, because a lot of people had hope in Obama. We need hope that is actually materialized into action. We don't just need someone to come in and sell us on a big dream. We need someone to come in and sell us on a vision for the country and then actually take steps towards moving us in that direction. Real steps, not half measures. Real concrete steps that people can feel and experience in their day-to-day lives is making things better, not worse.
1: Do you see that coming from either Biden or Trump?
0: I see half measures from both of them. Um, I think Biden has done some good things, but once again... And this is a personal preference. Just, there are certain policies that I feel are strongly necessary that he's opposed to. One example of this is, you know, universal healthcare system in the United States. I think that's absolutely vital to protecting American interests, both now and in the future. He's opposed to that. He said he would veto that bill if it came to his desk. So that's a big knock against him as a candidate. Um, and of course, Trump's no better on that. Yeah. You know, he promised that he was going to reform. Uh, our Medicare system we've going to reform talked our about healthcare that. system and I
1: think that would have to come in stages, baby steps well here's the thing there. I don't think you, I, I don't think, I think you can you do that in baby to... steps. but somewhere along the way, someone has to initiate that first step.
0: If you were going to do something like that, it would have to be a considerable decision um, because another thing you have to consider. There's a really popular political argument that stands in opposition to a lot of these things, which is the slippery slope argument. And once you get started on that, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. You know, first you start with universal health care and then that doesn't work. So the government regulates a few more things and a few more things and before you know it, you're a socialist country. That's never happened ever. That's never how socialism has come into existence. It has always been either through radical revolutionary means or a complete like social collapse that then rematerialized – … as a socialist organization. And the reason for that is quite simple. In a capitalist country, you have forces that stand in opposition to those interests, and those forces usually have a considerable amount of political power, which is why I don't think something like universal health care could come into existence slowly because you have… A very powerful political faction made up of the insurance companies the pharmaceutical industry that would stand in opposition to that slow marching process it would have to be done in a big package of legislation all at once now I wouldn't even be opposed to something like a public option I'm agnostic about how we achieve universal health care coverage if some people want to keep their private insurance but then we have a public option that people can use I'm fine with that some some countries have that system and it works pretty well I would prefer single payer, but I'm open to whatever we can get done. I just think that that is a very important step for America's economic development. It would go a long way for advancing economic liberty for everyday Americans. So back to hope.
1: What are you hopeful for come 2024? Not a who. But what are you hopeful for?
0: I'd say the biggest trend that I'm most excited about and hopeful for is seeing the way that Gen Z is so politically engaged and seeing the manner in which they are politically engaged. So they're a very progressive generation. I mean, I'm a member of Gen Z myself. We're a very progressive generation, and we're also very politically active. Um, And we ingest a lot of political content. We stay up to date on it. um, And we know how to use the Internet. ...to access the necessary information to make better political decisions. Um, And I think that's going to be really important. And it's it's already affected elections significantly. It affected the midterm significantly. They say that the youngest age demographic voted overwhelmingly for Democrats... And in many cases, we're more progressive than your average Democrat as well. So I'm hopeful to see what sort of social changes we'll be able to initiate as we become a more significant voting block that politicians have to cater to because we will really – will have some some might to us in terms of our effect on political elections. And I think we might be able to actually push through some of these reforms – that are popular among people my age, that have been resisted for so long by older generations and by conservatives as well.
1: Interesting times.
0: Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Critical Thinking Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to give our show a follow and leave us a review with any thoughts or suggestions you might have.